Uh, we are in our, our fourth week in our, our series on John, um, calling this a, a biography uh, of Jesus according to John, because that's what the Gospels are. They're, they're, they're stories of, of accounts of eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life. Um, John, we've said before, um, is kind of the weird one of, of the accounts. It's, uh, the other three follow very similar paths. Um, and, and share a lot of content. John is kind of the, the odd man out. Um, 90% of the book is, is unique to John um, because he had a kind of a very unique perspective, a unique thing he wanted to say. And so we've been seeing that uh, over the last several weeks, how, how G, uh, John is focused on who Jesus is and confronting us with who he is. And we're gonna, we're gonna see that again today where Jesus has a, a, a confrontation conversation um, with, with a person, and, and there, I think there's some good things that we can, we can draw into our own lives from, from this story. We're going to be in John chapter 4. Um, familiar story. I'm sure you, you've, you've, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard this story, um, but let's just uh, invite the Lord in, in before we, we, we read the text. God, we, we thank you for um, your presence, Lord. We've, we, we've already sensed uh, you here, we, we thank you that we don't take for granted that, that you are so faithful um, in our lives every day and when we come together to, to, to be with us. We ask that you would bring, bring your, um, your wisdom and your, 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 your spirit would, would rise up in us as we read your word. Would you illuminate it to us? God, we recognize that um, Without your spirit enlightening your word, we, we don't know what we're looking at. And so we ask and we, we make ourselves available to be changed and submit to your truth this morning. Amen. All right, so John chapter 4, we're just going to jump right in, starting in verse uh, 3. This is picking up, remember last week we, we met and talked about Nicodemus and, and that whole conversation. He goes to Jesus late at night. This is picking up right after, after that story in verse 3. He says, so he left, he, Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. Um, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. Uh, this is just a simple ge- matter of geography. Um, uh, Judea and Galilee were kind of like on the opposite ends of Israel, and Samaria is right in the middle, right? So it's just he had to go through Samaria to get there. Um, there's an interesting history between Jews and Samaritans. Um, Samaria was filled with Samaritans, uh, imagine that, uh, who, who were largely Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles over over the years, most of that, that area was uh, largely populated by people who, who didn't, who weren't exiled. Um, if you remember back your Old Testament history, that, that had, over the time while they were there, they had, they had intermarried with other, other groups. And, and Jews considered them um, really uh, impure. Uh, you know, uh, they would even use terms like half-breed. And um, the two disdained each other. There was tons of animosity they, 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 uh, it, that even broke out in violence at different times. These were not, um, this was not, this was not uh, Michigan, Ohio State, all right? This is, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, we have our fun, you know, we like to tease each other, whatever. But um, to my knowledge, there, there has been no declared war or, you know, governmental attack of uh, the other state based on, on that rivalry. This was, this was a real, um, this was real hatred. This was real prejudice. This was real, um, really racism that, that these two groups had for each other. And, and we're going to see that's going to play out in this story. Uh, verse 5, he says, Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that, that Jacob gave uh, his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. And I love that little detail. John's great at giving these little details, and, and he does it on purpose, because one of the, one of the, the, the goals of, of John is to really highlight um, both sides of, of Jesus. And that is the fact that he was, um, he was fully man, and he was fully God. 
And so we, he, one of the ways he teases out, John talks about, um, and helps us understand his humanity is with these little details. You'll see it throughout the gospel um, where Jesus was walking all day and he's, he's tired. It's such a, just such a like, normal guy thing, right? You, you had, he's hiking all day, it's hot, um, and he, just, he gets worn out. And, and, and rightfully so. It's, this is the Middle East. It's the middle of the day. He, he's, been, he's been walking. And, and so he, he, he gets to the, the well and he just slumps down. It's noon. Um, noon in the Middle East. I've not been... Anybody been in, in the Middle East at noon? Is that... I'm assuming that's not, that, that's not an enjoyable time, right? That's, that's like the... the Middle of the day in the middle of the desert. That, that sounds unpleasant. Um, and so he gives us this information. One, it helps paint the story. There's also some cultural references, cultural um, inferences we can, that, that the fact that it's noon is going to come into play uh, that we'll look at in a few minutes. Um, but it, it's noon. We need to make note of that. Uh, we also see in this just kind of like in a general uh, picture of, of John. Uh, he says that, painting the picture that this story happens during the day. And, and the reason this is significant is John, um, John as a book, you know, it's a really well-written piece of just piece of literature. There, there are motifs and, and themes throughout it that he uses to, to kind of tell the, the story and narrate the truths that he is trying to, to teach us, and one of the ways he does that is his use of uh, light and dark. So throughout the book, you'll see lots of references to, to light and dark. This story happens in the light, and you'll see a consistent th- see throughout this book that, that when God is, is moving, when, when, when uh, he's really kind of on the move at the story about him moving forward, it, it's going to happen during the day. And a lot of times it'll make note of that. John will say, this is a, you know, or it's just obvious. It happens in the day. Um, it also tells us stories and makes notes of, of things that happen in the darkness. And, you know, John, like, like your mom, nothing good happens after dark, right? You're supposed to be home because it's dangerous out there. Um, you, you see that in darkness, is, it's in darkness that Jesus' trial happens. That it's in darkness that Peter denies Jesus. It's in darkness that Judas betrays Peter. It's in darkness that Nicodemus, last week, if you remember, he came to Jesus kind of secretly. And then we see in the daylight over and over again is when Jesus is healing people and feeding 5,000 and teaching. He quotes Jesus as saying things throughout the book like, I am the light of the world and, and he who follows me will never fall into darkness. It's a, it's a, a beautiful theme that runs through the scripture. And I point that out, one, because it, it, as, you, as you do your own studying, that hopefully that, that'll kind of illuminate when, when you read this on your own, and also I think it, for me, it just gives me a great appreciation for the book itself. That it has, it has within it just the integrity of a very high quality piece of literature. And again, remember, this is written, um, it's, to me it's more evidence that, that this really is a Holy Spirit inspired book. Because John was not an author. <laughs> Right, that was not his trade. He, he was a, just a, a regular dude that that spent time with Jesus. But yet, through the 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 inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he's writing way above his skis. Like this is not something that he should be able to produce just in his own natural um, his natural gifting. So anyway, that was kind of a side, but I, I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, so, so we get into our story. So Jesus has been walking. It's hot. He's tired. He sits by this well. He's in Samaria, which is like, you know, a group of people that, they didn't, that the Jews didn't get along with. And in verse 7, we, we get to the kind of the meat of the story. Soon a Samaritan woman came over to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into the village to, to buy some food. Now, this conversation is all kinds of culturally wrong. Um, there, there, Jesus makes so many like no-nos just in this one little sentence. It's amazing. Um, he's supposed to, cultural appropriateness, 
right, at this time, um, with a woman in general in the Middle East, but especially the fact that he's in Samaria, and this is a Samaritan woman. If a woman were to approach, he was supposed to divert his eyes, kind of look away, and back off. Like, give her space, and then just not make eye contact with her. Um, this is, and that sounds kind of crazy to us, but that was the, the, and today, even today in the Middle East, that's still what would be expected in, in many circles. Um, she's a Samaritan, as we mentioned. He's a Jew. Um, G, there was no one else around, which made this even more like, okay, there's no other witnesses. There's no other, you're supposed to keep your distance and, and stay away so that, you know, nothing squirrely happens. Um, Jesus doesn't do any of that. And it's funny, he, he leans over and just says, hey, Ed, that looks good. Can I have some? You know, can I get a swig out of your bucket? Um, and I was trying to think of like what an analogy for this modern day would be. And I realized it still holds up. Imagine you're at the mall and you're sitting, you're sitting at the food court and some random stranger comes up to you and goes, I thought, well, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of your water? Would you? No, that's weird, right? <laughs> you don't drink out of other random strangers' water bottles. That's gross. Um, and and so so it it holds up. Like it's even it would be weird in our day. It's even more no no back then. So uh, again, Jesus doesn't doesn't mind any of that. He leans over. He asks for a drink, and the woman's reaction is what we'd expect. The woman was surprised. For Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. What are you, why are you asking me for a drink? She is shocked uh, by, by his request and by his conversation. Um, and her question is a real, real one because um, she needs to figure out real quick what's going on. Because this is way out of left field, way out of cultural norms. She, she's a woman, she's alone, um, and, and, and so she's got to figure out what, what is happening in this scenario. Is this guy setting me up somehow? Is this just some crazy weirdo? Is this guy hitting on me? Um, which sounds weird, but, but that, a lot of scholars think that, that was her perspective. <laughs> that, that was her understanding of what was going on in this moment. Um, because this is not, this, he's breaking all these norms to have a conversation. There must be a reason, right? And, and, and we know, right, Jesus' motivation, we'll see, like, he does have an agenda, but it's nothing that she would have anticipated, obviously. Um, and so she's in this moment having to figure out what's going on. And, and Jesus replies, he, his answer to her question helps narrow down none of those options. Um, it, 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 it doesn't clarify anything for her because his reason for talking with her is nothing she can see coming. Jesus is about to, to change her life, but she has no idea. And so the confusion continues. But I do think it's super interesting the way Jesus chose to approach her. Um, and it's something that I think we, especially as Americans, as Westerners, don't value as much as maybe we should. Um, in, in Ken Bailey's book, Jesus Through, Through Middle Eastern Eyes, um, he makes the observation that, that Jesus in this moment is choosing to put himself in a position of weakness. That his, his approach to, to this person he wants to serve is to actually ask her to serve him. To put himself in a place of, of vulnerability, to put himself in a place where he actually needs something from her. And that, that, that can sound counterintuitive, but, but in Jesus' wisdom, and, and if, if you think about it, it it's, it's putting her in a position to maybe feel comfortable and receive what he wants to share with her because he's not coming to her from a position of strength that's going to cause her to recoil, Right? Um, it's just fascinating how, how, how humble our God is. What he's willing to do to, to, to set a table for us to be able to receive and be willing to receive what he is trying to give us. 
Jesus goes on, verse 10, he says, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, when we read this, this phrase, um, and rightfully so, when we read it, we think living water. Oh, clearly she, you know, living water, that's such a, for us, that's a very churchy term, right? That's a spirit. We no one, no one uses that in regular day vernacular. You don't, you know, if you guys go out to eat after, after church today and the waiter's not going to come up and say, you know, would you like flat or living water, right? It's sparkling water. Um, but that term back then was just a way of saying fresh water. It was living water was, was water you would get from a spring or a river. Um, it, it was, it was a normal, Phrase. So she's not really tipped off by that, like we are, that he's talking about something spiritual. Um, and she most likely understood him to just claiming to have access to some better water than this well they're sitting at. And um, Jesus, to this point, is still not making sense to this poor woman. Uh, you can see it in her responses. She, she still doesn't know what's going on. She's trying to figure out his angle and he's still setting her up to give her an opportunity to hear the truth. Her response in verse 11, but sir, uh, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where will you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? So at this point, this, this woman, um, the Samaritan woman, I'm just going to name her. I'm just going to call her Sandy, if that's all right. Uh, saying this woman over and over is, is, can, gets annoying to me. So um, Sandy, we're going to call her Sandy, uh, Sandy the Samaritan. Uh, <laughs> she, she seems to lob a grenade into the conversation at this point. All right, this, we, we, we can, it's easy for us to miss this, but, but she, her response to him is kind of like poking the bear. She's talking to a Jew, and um, her, her defense, this whole stuff when he's talk, she's talking about, she says, our, greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. The number one thing the Jews and the Samaritans were arguing about was whether Samaritans were really a part of the covenant process, promise. Were they still... In. Samaritans said, yes, we are still, we are God's chosen. And the Jews said, no, you're not. You're disqualified. And, and, and because of that, you, you really don't, you really aren't um, entitled to, you shouldn't have land. You shouldn't have any of these, these things. You shouldn't be claiming, you know, Jacob as your, your ancestor. So by, by bringing up and, and referring to, to this well as our ancestor Jacob, and that there was, it was their well, uh, it would have started, say, a brouhaha with many Jews, right? Like this was, and she would have known that. Like these were fighting words. And so you see she's kind of like, I think, I think you can, it looks like she's still, she's still trying to figure things out. She's, she's kind of trying to keep him at, at bay conversationally by, by throwing up something that she thinks is going to change the subject or, or, or help figure out what his response is. Um, we've all done that in conversations, right? Where you're not sure what's going on or you, you, you're a little uncomfortable, so you try and change the subject or, or um, maybe I'm the only one that's ever done this, but you, 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 have you ever in a conversation tried to figure out what topic, what topic can I bring up that will um, encourage the other person to end the conversation? Has anybody ever done that besides me? Um, maybe it's just not... Maybe it's just me. Um, but it seems like maybe there's some of that going on here. She, she's putting roadblocks up in the conversation. But, but Jesus totally ignores it, right? He, he, he stays with his conversation. That's one of the things that I, I love about Jesus, and I think it's something that, um, you know, is so... I wish I was better at it. I, would I hope I can get better at it. And that is, you know, he would be an amazing... Jesus would be an amazing debater because you could not get him off message. Whatever, whatever was at the heart of where he wanted to go in a conversation, 
it was going to get there. And there was nothing, you know, you almost feel bad for the, for the Pharisees and for this, this, this woman, you know, for Sandy. There's nothing, there's no trick you can pull out that was going to get him off of his topic. And, and so she tries to lob this grenade and he just totally sidesteps it. He says in verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And Sandy says, please, sir, give me the water. Then I'll, I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come get this water. So Jesus continues to offer this living water, which she still, by all accounts, doesn't understand what he's talking about. Um, but in her reply, I think we see our first really flicker of honest conversation from Sandy. And, and it's just in that last little uh, sentence. If you really want to know, this is a little just, you probably noticed this in, in, this in life. Um, when you're talking with someone, the throwaway phrase at the end of what they're talking about many times is the most true thing you'll, you'll hear in that conversation. Right? They say the things that they, a lot of times we say the things we know we should say or we want people to think, but right at the end, um, you know, a little bit of truth or a little bit of honest emotion will leak out in our sarcasm or in our, our, our finishing of the sentence. And, and we see that here. She says, you know, I won't be thirsty again and I won't have to come get this water. She mentions not having to come to this well. Why? Well, it, it was hard work. It was hard work to go to a well, to get this big thing full of water and hoist it back to your house. Um, it, it was especially hard if you were by yourself. It really wasn't a one-man job, um, which is why most women would do it together. And they would do it in the cooler part of the day because it's hot. And who wants to go in the hot part of the day? Um, for most women, it was an important social part of the day. This was, this was, this was their life group, right? <laughs> you, everyone knew at a certain time, you know, you and your, your, your friends were going to meet at the well and you're going to help each other and you're going to catch up on your day. And it was, it was an important part of, of, of life. It was a valuable part of life for many people. Um, matter of fact, there's been stories of even today in, in certain, um, places in, 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 um, you know, in Africa where missionaries, well-meaning missionaries have gone to uh, certain villages or tribes and, and they, 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 we have this tendency to help without asking, right? Like we've all done this where um, we think we know what someone needs, but we don't bother to ask them if it's what they need. And there has been times where missionaries would go in and they would, they would go, oh, these, these poor people, they have to, you know, they have to walk this quarter mile to this well. And so they, they would like dig a well in the middle of town and they'd come back later and, and, and find out that like no one was using the new well. And they, they'd be like, well, why? What's going on? Is it not working? And they say, well, no, if we use that, we don't get to spend any time together. There was a, they had a value, their, their life was built, the rhythm was built on this, together we go get the water, and together we come back, and they valued that. It was an important part of their, 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 their community, their community life. And so we see that here, that, that, that this, was an, this was an important part of the life, but here we have Sandy who's not taking part in that, that social aspect of, of community. She, she's coming in the middle of the day where she knows nobody else is going to be there. And we find out why, because Jesus' response to her is going to get to the heart of why she's here alone in the middle of the day. And why his conversation up to this point is going to turn and become meaningful to her. In verse 16, she says, or he says to her, go get your husband. And she replies, I don't have a husband. Um, and Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the guy you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. I love that trans. I love that translation. You know, it 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 it, it kind of fits a more convert. You know, so much of the time when we when, when we portray Jesus, it's always so straight and serious and somber, right? 
Jesus always has talks like he has a a degree and he's emotionless and very serious about everything. But I I don't think that's how this conversation, I think he was just kind of like matter-of-factly saying it, you know, no judgment involved, but just, man, you are are not lying, lady. You you do not have a husband. Um, and, and, And we see Sandy here, she finds herself in a moment that really that every Christian has ever experienced. Now, maybe not with this specific life circumstance, but that moment you recognize that your shortcomings, that your sin is, is exposed, right? That somebody sees it. And her, her response is so interesting. She, she doesn't deny it, but, but it's almost like she, she's, she's defending her, the fact that there's really not much she can do about it. Um, in a kind of a weird way. In verse 19, she says, Sir, said, the, said Sandy, the woman, uh, you must be a prophet. Right? So she recognizes, okay, the, the, the conversation is flipped now. We've entered a new, this isn't some weird, you know, the, 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 the answers to why he's talking to her is getting smaller, right? This guy has just gone from, like, must be a weirdo or a creepo or hitting on me to, oh, like, he's got, like, he's a prophet. Like, this is, God speaking to him. And so the, the conversation here is shifting. She says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while the Samarit- we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? I think Sandy's reply here is an honest and common response. She goes right to religious answers. Right? She obfuscates the, the exposure of, of her life with this uh, def- kind of like this weird defense like, well, I'm, I've, I've, I've looked into religion. I've looked into these things. I'm trying them, but I, I don't know what the right answer is. What is, what is the, you tell me the right answer. Where am I supposed to go with this issue? Like, where, where do I, do I go to Jerusalem? Is that where I get forgiveness? Do I, am I okay with going to this place? Uh, it, does it even matter since no one can seem to agree? And Jesus replies, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. There is a time coming, and indeed it's here, now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain all this to me. So she's saying, well, I do, I, I do believe, you know. Have you ever had that? If you ever get in a spiritual conversation with someone or ask someone about their, their relationship, well, I believe there's a God. You know, it's kind of her response. I believe, yeah, sure, there's a Messiah. Uh, someday, when he shows up, if he ever explains this to me, but... The inference there is, but at this moment, I have no answers, <laughs> right? It's not doing anything for me. And then Jesus reveals to her, he says, and Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Throughout the book of John, there are, um, there are a number of these statements um, called I, I am statements, where Jesus is going to make this um, these declarations of who he is. And this is the first one. Um, and, and he chooses to, to reveal himself. And really, it's, it's maybe the most direct of, of all of them. He, he tells this, this Sandy, he, he's a, she's the first one that we have recorded where he just directly lays it out. I am the Messiah. I am here to save you. Jesus' answer to her question is not a religious answer. He says, uh, neither. No religious activity will bring you the living water that I've been talking to you about. Salvation is not found in a place, and it's not found in a task. It's found in a person. And surprise, it's me. <laughs> it's kind of the, the, the end of this, this, this speech he gives. It's, I'm the Messiah. I am the answer that, that you're looking for in these places. 
And this, this revelation changes Sandy's life forever. In this, we don't have, I don't think, I mean, it's, I think we all know the Bible is not a transcript, right? We don't have all of the words that happen in every conversation. Um, it, it's reasonable to assume that, that Jesus said more things to her than we have written down here. Um, but in that conversation, look at what happens as a result of it. Um, if we jump down to verse 28. The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? In the course of one confrontation with Jesus, this woman went from being lost to being found, from being isolated to being in community. You know, it, having multiple husbands and living with someone that's not your, your husband, there, there was a reason she was alone at that well. That was a, that was a community breaker. You didn't do that in, the, in, that, in those days in that community. She was utterly alone and shamed by the people uh, around her. But yet, look what happens in this story. She, she goes from, from um, being isolated and, and, and avoiding people to running to those very same people. She says, it says she goes right to, to, to the town, the village, the, the people that have, the people that made it so she had to be at that well by herself. She goes running to them to tell them about Jesus. And it says in verse 39, um, if we skip down, uh, there's a bunch of nonsense about the disciples being clueless and not know what's going on. We're going to skip that. Uh, verse 39, he says, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear this message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we indeed know the Savior of the world. It's amazing. You could argue that Sandy is the first Christian missionary Ever. Um, but it's interesting, God, even in this, like such a great story, but even in this, when we start thinking about it, um, it's real, real quickly, our, our, our religious ideas can, can start to creep up. Because we, Jesus, even in this, is confronting our ideas of what, uh, what, what ministry is, what being on mission looks like. Um, this is a great story, but, but she would not be considered today qualified, right? Um, and I think that, that that's one of the things that, that why Jesus chose to, to, to do this. He wanted to show us something. He wanted to teach us something. Um, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, David and Goliath, um, he seeks to answer the question, why the underdog wins so much? Um, he lays out this, uh, this, these statistics that it, it's a weird thing that, that uh, just in general, especially in sports, um, underdogs win way more often than they're supposed to. And, and his conclusion is this. Uh, simply, we have a bad tendency to assign value and importance to the wrong things when we're trying to predict outcomes. We think things are more important than they really are. And other things that are really important, we don't place value in. Uh, and he calls the book David and Goliath because his, from his perspective, uh, David and Goliath, the story that we use to talk about underdogs, right? You know, that, that is literally the number one analogy. That's David versus Goliath. We use that in all, everything. His point is that story, even the story that we use as the ultimate picture of the underdog is wrong. That, that David and Goliath isn't, David wasn't the underdog in that story. We see him as the underdog because we overvalue things like height 
and age and experience. But in the but if you really strip all the important things out of or into that story and take away all the unimportant things, you had two people went to battle, one brought a big stick and the other brought a gun. Right? <laughs> David, uh, they say a, 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 a slingshot, the slingshots they used back then had the accuracy and the stopping power of a 45 caliber handgun. And you had Goliath who, who, who had this giant spear that had, had one-third the range and, and one-tenth the, the, the velocity that, that David could do in, the, in Iraq. It wasn't an underdog story. Is his, is his contention that if they fight that same fight 10 times, David wins nine of them. But we see it as an underdog because we undervalue important things. And I think we, we see an example of that in, in our own, um, when we assess ourselves and other people at times, when we're looking at who can God use? Who does God want to use? And Sandy is a great example because she had a really bad resume. Like, she's going to have a real hard time getting hired at a church. Um, She was part of the wrong group, right? She's Samaritan, strike one. We're already like, eh, not sure about that. She had five husbands, right? So it's like, okay, maybe two of them aren't your fault, but five? got to be something going on there. She had a live-in boyfriend. She had, she had no cir- social circle, right? This is, not the, this is not the quality you want. And if you're looking for a missionary, someone who has no friends and everybody around them doesn't like them and wants nothing to do with them. That is not the person you go to when you want someone whose job is influence and network, right? Um, she wasn't particularly religious. You could tell in their conversation, she was aware of some things, but not particularly you know, actively engaged in a spiritual life. But yet, yet she's the first person that Jesus tells straight out on the Messiah. Yet she's the, the first person that, that, that goes with the story of Jesus to a group of, of people and leads them to Jesus. Because all that stuff, while not completely insignificant, in this story, it, it's, it didn't matter because she had some of the things that really did. What are those? Well, she had an honest, genuine encounter with Jesus. She had, she told others her story. She was willing to face possible rejection she had the the courage think about think about the story she said she she goes running into town after this this uh you know she has this conversation with jesus and she goes running into town and not just to her her it even says in the text that the reason that they they were interested in what drew them in was the fact that she told them he told her everything she ever did the very thing that she was most ashamed of, the very thing that was keeping her isolated from all these people was the, was the story she was bringing back to them and being willing to bring up, being willing to, to show them, look, yes, everybody here knows all my, my junk. He, he knows my junk too, look. And he told me about it and he still, he still loved me, he still accepted me, he still was willing to let me know that, that he wanted to save me. She, had the, she, she was willing, she had the courage to share that part of her story with these people. And she was willing to be open with those things. This was, I think, probably the most impactful part of, of her sharing her story. Why they were so um, intrigued, maybe. The fact that, well, gosh, Sandy's willing to to open up about all this stuff. You know, because people don't actually talk about that stuff. Everybody knew, everybody stayed away um, from her. And, but it was not brought up in her face. She waited, you know, everyone's nice. They wait till she leaves before they start talking trash. Like, 
And this story confronts me with the, with, the, with the question. All this happened because Sandy had one conversation with Jesus and had the courage to tell people she was, uh, uh, she was um, tell people that she was avoiding what happened. Am, am I doing that? Am I willing to do that? Do, do I tell people my story that I know need to hear it? Am I, am I willing to share? Not, not, not am I willing to try and convince somebody that I'm right and they're wrong. Am I willing to share the personal parts of my story that are my story? Who is someone in your life that needs to hear your story? And that, by, by your story, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the, the actual scenario in which you first became a Christian. It could be another part of your story, a part where, where Jesus confronts you and, and, and forgives you for, for some big mess up that you did and you, you thought he was going to just crush you for it, but you received forgiveness. Or the time that he, he, you thought all things, everything was just going to go, go, that you were going to lose everything and, and in his sovereignty, he shows up in some amazing way. We have those stories, but a lot of times we, the enemy gets in our head and we, 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 we think of all the ways that somebody could discredit your story or not believe it, and so we don't even bother to share it. We need to be more like Sandy and just not worry about that. Have the courage to share, because anything beyond that is not our responsibility. Whether they believe it, whether it makes an impact, um, any of that, that's between them and the Holy Spirit. That's between them and God. It's up to God on how he uses it. But we are, we are commissioned to share our stories. We're commissioned to be witnesses. And it doesn't mean we have to all be, um, you know, have our doctorate in theology and, and explain everything. The most powerful witnesses in, in the New Testament that we see are, are people that did not, they weren't, the, it wasn't the Pharisees. They were mostly trying to kind of like, you know, evangelize the Pharisees. They were the ones that didn't get it. Um, and and, there, and the, the best defense to that was just, here's what I know. Jesus did this. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why he did it, but he did it, right? There's no defense to that because it's your story. And the one of the few saving graces we have right now in our culture is that that more than any other time, um, people have no defense for that. It's the one thing that this, this whole, you know, um, my truth, postmodern mentality uh, <laughs> that causes a lot, of, a lot of issues. The one upside to it is people are very open to hear your truth, right? Um, and so we should, we should be taking advantage of that every opportunity. And so this was the challenge that, 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 and the question that really plagued me as I was preparing this message. And so, so I didn't want to be alone. So I'm, I'm leaving that with you. Is there somebody in your life that needs to hear a part of your story? That you need the, the, just a moment of courage to share with them Something that Jesus has done in, in your life. I would encourage you this, this, this week, even right now, is there a person that's coming to mind? To, uh, I challenge you to pick a person in your life and pick a deadline. Right? <laughs> so pick, pick a person and pick a deadline. I, and, and it's okay if it's not like this week. Better to, pick, better to pick a goal you'll attain than one you know you can't. Um, so, you know, you say, man, I, my friend, you know, I've got this close friend. We've been friends forever, but I've never talked to him about Jesus. I've never even asked. But I'm pretty sure he doesn't, you know, he's not religious. He doesn't really think about God or know about God. I really want to, I would love to be able to just at least tell him my story and be, offer that. And if he's interested, he knows he has a place he can go to, to, ask some questions. Um, but I'm not ready for that. <laughs> that's, that's okay. You can be, be honest, you know. Maybe say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take three months. I'm going to give myself three months to get ready. It doesn't have to take you three months. Be clear. But, <laughs> but, if that, if, but you could do that. And, and say, so, okay, now I'm going to, for the next three months, I'm going I'm to work on 
preparing myself and, and, and doing whatever it is I need to do to, to have that conversation. Um, there may be someone in your life that God is calling you to, to pursue in that way. And then finally, as we close, um, I just wanted to uh, just have a moment of prayer um, for, for anyone who, who's still struggling with a part of their story. Um, you know, the power of, of, of Sandy's testimony was that she, after her interaction with Jesus, the, the, the shame of, of, her part, of her story was no longer, uh, didn't have the power to keep her silent anymore. It became the thing that, it became the power of her story. It, it completely flipped. Listen, when Jesus exposes us, it's not, it's not to shame us. It's actually to remove that shame. And, and after that shame is removed, it becomes, it, it many times becomes the engine of our story. Just the fact that we're not ashamed of it anymore is remarkable to people. The fact that you can, you can talk about something that, that in their mind, they're going, if, man, if, I, if that had happened to me, there's no way I would ever let anybody know about that. <laughs> there's no way I would be able to, to even pretend like I could, you know, step foot in church or, or pray. There's no way I would, I would believe that or act like I was good enough to talk to God after doing that thing. Yeah, you, you can come up and play a little bit if you want. Um, the enemy likes to lie to us and, and convince us that we need to live in shame over these things to show how truly sorry we are for them, right? These, the, I, did this, I did this thing, I made this mistake, I, I, I was in rebellion, I, I, whatever, whatever the thing is. And the enemy's real good at making sure we, we somehow go blind to that fact that, that when God, when God forgives us, he, he, he separates, you know, he throws our sin as far as the east is from the west. And instead, we, we go, well, I did that thing. And so let me, let me just, I, I need to make sure that every time I think about that thing, I have the right emotional reaction, right? That I make sure I, I feel, if I don't feel bad when it comes up or when I'm reminded of it, then, then maybe I don't care. Maybe I don't love God enough. And, and God, I think sometimes God's going, that's, oh, you totally missed it. It's not about how much you love me. It's, it's the fact that I love you so much, you don't have to feel bad about that anymore. You don't have to have shame over that thing anymore. And it's not until we get past that, it's not until he removes the shame that that thing can actually become the testimony that we, we want it to be, that, that he wants it to be. So if you guys just want to close your eyes for a minute. I just want to give us an opportunity. If there's something in your life that maybe it happened recently, maybe it happened 20 years ago, that... You're, you still, if you're honest, if you look at things, even in this moment, maybe you never noticed it before, but there's still a shame attached to that. Maybe something you did uh, wrong. It may be something that was done to you. You know, the devil's a jerk. He doesn't, he doesn't play fair. He will make us feel ashamed for something that was not our fault if we let him. Lord, in this moment, we just ask you, Spirit, would you just, God, you say you will convict us of sin and of righteousness. Lord, just ask in this moment, would you just show us any, any areas in our life that are, um, that we're carrying Ill illegitimate shame, things that, that you have, you have already paid for, we have already repented of, or they weren't our burden to begin with, but someone put them on us that we, we are still carrying. you if you have something i just encourage you just in, in the stillness of your own heart would you just offer that up to god ask him to to remove that shame
not because of anything you did, but because of, because of what he did. Because we, we just read the account of how, how Jesus, who Jesus is and how he interacts with us and how that, that's what he wants. He wants to get rid of the shame. That's why he came. That's why he, 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 he died. That's why he rose again. God, we thank you that, that you love us so much. God, we thank you that, that you, you don't want any of your kids to, to, to have to carry the burden of shame. That when you forgive us, you fully forgive us. That it is a done, settled thing. That even, even those things that are put on us by other people, those hurts, those wounds, the, the circumstances that maybe we didn't bring on ourselves, but we're still left holding the tag that you, you pay those too. And so we, we give you those this morning. God, we ask, I ask that you would, you would protect our, our hearts and our minds. God, we, we just break um, strongholds of lies of the enemy that would try to convince us that, that we, we have to hold on to the, the guilt we have to hold on to the shame, some twisted penance. How would you just cleanse us? Would you make us whole in those areas? Give us fresh perspective that those, those things can become what, what you want them to be, what they, what they really are destined to be, and that's testimonies to your grace and your love and our freedom. So that we have yet another story that we can share with those that we come in contact with. Stories that, that can bring them hope and draw them closer to you. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Happy Sunday. See you guys next week.